in the video, uh, there is testimony, I suppose you would call it, uh, in the term she's, she's speaking to the camera, uh, about a woman um, alleging that Jason Nixon said, let's just shoot the B word because this is a family-friendly podcast. Is it? It's called it Outrage Machine. I don't think it is. We but... have family-friendly <laughs> outrage. <laughs> Hey everyone, you're listening to Outrage Machine. My name is Tim Querengesser and I am here with Shama Rangwala, Natalie Pon, Danielle Parody. We're about to talk Outrage. Episode 3. We're on week, what is it, 55 of the election campaign. I think it's really week 3. Not Tim, it's day 2. Day 2, yeah. I have actually like literally lost track of what day it is. It, it the days seem to be much longer than normal days. Is anyone else feeling that? Is anyone else feeling a little bit tired of this election? Yeah, I had to escape to the mountains yesterday. <laughs> I, I I went into like a dark seclusion tent yesterday. This election it, has actually felt like really short for me because I'm not campaigning. So like if I were out door knocking every day, like I usually would be, like it's the longest writ period ever. But right now I'm just like, this is great. I love my life right now. I have so much free time. Well, one I'm of us is happy. Time. <laughs> I'm spending too much time on Twitter, which is never good for my sanity. <laughs> Absolutely. It's making me like miserable. I, I hate Twitter and yet I can't look away. Okay. Uh, so we're on episode three and uh, I think the big thing we need to catch up on is the obvious one. So last week, uh, four people got together on television um, and talked about a bunch of stuff. I don't really know what was really decided on that, but it was called a debate. I don't know if they really <laughs> debated, but let's have a little chat about it. So uh, we had the four party leaders that were allowed to be on there. Uh, Mr. Fildebrandt was not allowed and I'm, I'm forever bitter about that. But um, yeah, any thoughts on the messaging and engagement of outrage within the election debate? Was there, or the leaders' debate, was was there anything that caught your eye or was it a snore fest? It was your typical leaders' debate in an election. You know, 2015 was really an outlier and that, like, that was the most exciting, probably, political debate we've ever seen in Canada. And this was just more of what we're used to. And I, I don't think anyone's really surprised by that. Were you surprised by any of the messaging coming out of Notley, for instance, because you've, you've pointed it out a few times? I only listened to 20 minutes of it. I was proctoring my final exam at the university. But what I was listening to is essentially like Notley saying like, this is what Jason Kenney's going to do. And Jason Kenney saying, this is what I'm going to do. The liberals being like, look at us, we exist. And the Alberta party ripping both the NDP and the Liberals and the UCP. In a fabulous 1995 blazer. <laughs> Miami Vice. Um, was there, there, there must have been some surprises, though. Like, uh, I, I thought it was interesting that uh, Jason Markasoff, uh, people have disagreed with me on Twitter, but he pointed out that Kenny called uh, Rachel Notley premier the entire night instead of Ms. Notley or things like that. Was there anything to that or is that just... Uh, Did they disagree with you that that was a fact or that, what was yeah, the point I of think disagreement? the disagreement was like, that's no big deal. That wasn't intentional. I mean, um, Jason uh, Jason Kenny flew in somewhat. Who, who did he flew? Michelle Rampel. He he practiced and showed up and, and I think he had that all, that was all intentional. That was my take. Yeah, he seemed well practiced. I mean, when you compare it, to, I guess, to, it, it was interesting because it was the night after the Charles Adler interview where he uh, did not seem focused, but he was very controlled during the debate. He definitely didn't go off message and he didn't seem rattled at all. Um, neither did Notley. I mean, it was a, like Natalie said, it was an average showing for politicians. It wasn't, no one emerged as a brilliant star of the night to me. It was... I got through about an hour and then I just couldn't take it anymore. The free debate format was a mess. It's just everybody talking over each other. I can't hear anyone. And then they all just kind of smile smugly when they get their talking points across. So why is it that we, we get so excited about it, um, about these debates yet? They seem to give us nothing. Is it like we want to see them fighting or we want to see drama? We want to see uh, some 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 events, some slip up, some whatever. We want a math is hard comment. Like we're waiting for that that slip up, that bozo eruption or that drama that's going to happen. And, and to your point, we didn't see that because we had party leaders that were really restrained and really, really disciplined. And, and to your point about um, Jason Kenney calling... Rachel Notley, the premier, he's always done that. So going back to partisan rallies in like 2016, he's always called her the premier. He's always said, you know, we can disagree on facts, but she's actually a really nice person and we don't dislike her. We dislike her policies. And he's made that very clear for a number of years. So I wasn't surprised to hear that at all during the debate. 
Yeah, and I think that uh, political debates tend to be a lot of theater. And so it's this illusion that we're going to actually learn something about the party platforms. But instead, it's just what are their worldviews? How are they communicating it? There's nothing really specific, I think, that anybody retains from a debate. So you heard a lot of different kinds of mobilizing data, mobilizing anecdotes, uh, attacking, trying to be positive, trying to, you know, like David Kahn, maybe make a, a joke and <laughs> intentional or not. And so those are the things that, that we remember from this because the format doesn't lend itself to actually like gaining any knowledge. Do you, do you guys think that the format should remain as such? Like, does it does it fit in a social media era? Does it really work for us now? Has it changed or is it a good feel good sort of like in the way that the Charles Adler thing had us like gathered around the radio as if we were listening to like, I don't know, you know, like War of the Worlds. Um is it one of those come together moments where we're like we we feel Albertan or I think it's it's one of those nerdy political things again. Like I don't know if um I I, I hate to have the idea of the average Albertan, but I I don't know. Like do, did my grandma watch it? No. Um I think it's just sort of political nerds being able to get together and talk about it on Twitter. That's its primary purpose. I think you have to have them though because it's the only forum where we actually have all four parties in one room talking at each other and to each other and against each other. And we're we're never going to have like an exciting debate because debates are so scripted and they're so disciplined on what they say, what they don't say. They have every situation mapped out for what their talking point is. I mean, my friend um, texted me in our group chat at one point, my grandma has fallen asleep next to me on the couch. Like that's that's just what's going to happen. But there's no other way to get all four people in a, or however many leaders we're going to have next debate. Who knows? Derek might get it next time. But there's no other way to get everyone in a room all at once and have it be like this exciting, thrilling, exhilarating, drama filled fury that we all want it to be. Yes. So on the one hand, with a political debate, there's the spectacle of seeing adversaries in the same space together. And I think that, you know, people want to see what happens. But on the other hand, there's no way to really fact check anything that they're saying in real time. So you can see, you know, all kinds of comments being made that have no basis in reality. So it really is just spectacle. Yeah. At one point, I just turned it down. And I think to everyone's point, uh, and and Natalie, I think, brought it up um, most uh, like sort of specifically, but um, I was more interested in the like um, body language and just trying to like see how people talk to each other, how they, without even hearing what they're saying. So I did notice that at the end, Rachel Notley, there's a photo of her shaking Stephen Mandel's hand and he's shaking her hand, but he's not looking at her and she's smiling up at him. And I thought that that was kind of interesting. Well, anyone who's ever done like competitive debate or anything like that through high school or university knows that it's never about what you actually say. No one's listening to you. It's about how you say it. It's it's the the how convincing are you when you say something? And it's no different in political debates. It's how convincing are you and how trustworthy do you seem? Do you appear to be the next premier? And we saw that in 2015, Jim Prentice was undisciplined. He didn't appear to be the next premier, but Rachel Notley did. And that was the differentiating factor in that debate. Well, then I think we can take from the debate that uh, Mr. Khan is the clear next premier of Alberta. Well, people were thirsting after him on Twitter. So. <laughs> in, in this group chat that I'm in, someone actually was just like obsessed with Khan, not only for like the this great fiscal policy that he has, but I was getting messages like, Con rocked my effing socks. Um, he is such a stud. Um, I love Con so much. Give me more of that sweet, sweet right wing fiscal okay. policy. So it was just okay. this is an R rated podcast. <laughs> I'm gonna bleep all this out now. Like, <laughs> I didn't swear. My friend knows who this is. He knows I'm gonna say these uh, these messages. But it was it was honestly just like I think people were reminded like, hey, there's this other party too. Okay, guys, any thoughts on some like sort of big themes coming out of 
the campaign. Take a big step back, the 30,000 foot view. So I'll talk a little bit about a big strategy I've been thinking about, which is how outrage is mobilized to give the outraged person some sense of moral authority. So it's like, how dare you say this? Or like, how dare you think this? Um, You know, you've besmirched my honor or something like it becomes um, this kind of moralizing that happens. And so that makes it really, really hard to argue with. So when you see all of this outrage proliferating, and of course, like, I think there are lots of different kinds of outrage that have different relationships to reality. Um, But when it proliferates like this, it's really hard to have any kind of conversation because sometimes they're just like living in completely different worldviews. So um, do you... That makes me interested. I want to take from that. Do you guys think there is room to dialogue in Alberta politics in 2019? Um, and if it if there was, where would it happen? Would it happen on social media or would it happen in like a room like this? It's happening at the doors. It's it's not happening on Twitter. That's a place where you go when you want to argue with someone and, and talk in circles or or you, you're just wanting to shout the loudest. But I think some of the best conversations I've had in politics uh, with voters have been at the doors. When you're, you're standing there face to face with someone looking in their eye, you can't call them nasty names and tell them that they're the worst scum of the earth for whatever partisanship they have. It's it's a real life conversation because you're treating the other person with respect and like a human being. Any thoughts though? I think I think you brought door No, I think you, that you brought up that like the the door to door thing wasn't as important. I think in one conversation we had a while back, but maybe not. Well, I did door knock last year for the Alberta party. Uh, so it was interesting. It was an interesting exercise because it is a much different dialogue. But I think, you know, I'm also hearing that like four out of five doors, people don't necessarily answer them. We're a pretty isolated society in some ways. I can't say that I really, I don't know if I change anyone's mind. Maybe the best you can do is kind of plant a little bit of doubt. Shama, you look like you're dying to talk. <laughs> well... It's just, it's been a really hard week. So like I live in North Strathcona and there are, you know, white supremacists and homophobes and stuff like marching around. And so I think my anger at them and their anger at like the presence of some abstraction of someone who could be like me, these are not equivalent. And I, I don't have any way to dialogue with them, like, nor do I really want to put myself in a mm-hmm. position where I would have to. Yeah, totally. But if uh, I'm thinking about what like the outrage machine is doing right now in week three of the campaign leading into week four... Uh, what I'm going to say is they should be driving outrage in a way that gets their supporters to help them knock doors. And so one thing you're taught in conservative politics is like you don't win elections without knocking doors to ID supporters to get out your vote. Like there's no way to win elections. You can't win an election on Twitter. So what I'm hoping and what I sometimes see with a lot of these parties that do end up being successful is they drive outrage in such a way that it motivates their people to go help their team try to win. There's there's now like recurring blips of outrage. So we have the weekly show up at Rachel Notley's office here in Edmonton. I'm sure there's been a few other things. We've got the like stop Notley signs. Why are we seeing this? Why? Like, it seems like it's entrenched now. We all know where we stand. What's that trying to achieve? I mean, this is something that I study that's a bit like too much for this podcast, but uh, I would say like a lot of it, this is not new. It's not new to Alberta politics. There's this incompatibility between sort of the exploitation of workers on the one hand and people who want democracy um, and more power to the people. And so there's no like center to that anymore. And we see this in Brazil. We see it in the Philippines, in Europe, and of course the United States and in India. Like this is not a thing that's like localized to Alberta. And the people who are marching here, uh, they've been showing up on Saturdays at the ledge at Churchill Square for months and months now. Like it's not uh, it's not from this election specifically. It's intensifying maybe, but but it's a much like bigger kind of sociological issue that, yeah. There's kind of like these protests and marches on all sides of the spectrum for a lot of different issues. And I, I personally just think it's a waste of time, to be quite honest. Like it drives a little bit of media, drives some social media clicks and can kind of be that viral tweet that gets people going. But I've always had an issue with with these what they call peaceful protests or whatever, because like I've always just been of the opinion, like go out and do something like you can you can sit around and complain and you can you can march and, and do that. Or you could spend that time actually like helping the team that you want to win. And it's a matter of like, if you've got a t- like a limited constraint like time, 
what's the best way to use that? And I've I've never been a fan of of these protests, whether it's the the truck convoys on the Anthony Henday, whether it's um, marches to Doug Schweitzer's office or to Rachel Notley's office. Like, I'm not a fan of any of them, regardless of what part of the spectrum they're coming from. I do see some value in, in solidarity when it comes to marches. I mean, I'm, I don't really care if the yellow vests feel solidarity, but I'm sure that they they care if they feel solidarity. Uh, so I, marches sometimes happen outside. They happen outside of partisan politics. Sometimes they're helped along, uh, like the GSA march in Calgary and in Edmonton that was uh, partially organized by Duncan Kinney from Progress Alberta. So there's certainly a tie there. Uh, And with the Campaign for Life or the March for Life that you see every year, there's definite political ties to the Conservative Party. I I don't know that they, they do nothing, but I think that they're they're not the place that dialogue would happen. I mean, I've been to a rally and uh, I've also held rallies. So you people do come and they, they counter protest and there's actually just a strategy for how you deal with those people and it's not dialogue. So it's about exposing views uh, and pushing them further, like marginalizing their opinion. So what I meant by it doesn't do anything is you're not going to convince anyone otherwise. So these are people who already have their minds made up. It's usually on an issue that's not going to be something that you can sway someone else's opinion on and that's what I mean by it doesn't do anything. Like, <laughs> there are two minds of it though. Like I, I, I think I agree with you. I think there's a little bit of romance and and sort of let's be in the 1960s in the U.S. and march on the streets, that sort of thing that gets behind a lot of protests sometimes that we can make change like they did. Um, but I also think I, in seeing the Adler interview, I think I was talking to you about this, but I just think that in some ways his dialogue with Jason Kenney that night and pushing him really hard opened people up. Like I saw people that I talk to regularly starting to say, hey, I don't know how I feel about things now. Like he literally shifted the goalposts of what's possible to talk about here. But there's also a reason why Rachel Notley and the NDP have now pivoted to talking about pipelines in the economy. It's because they know that their their track for talking about social issues and gaining momentum and gaining votes there is running out. And it has been pretty short for a while. And I think they're now starting to realize that if they are going to win more votes and sway people to the uh, to the NDP, sorry, I almost slipped there. But if they're going to sway people to the NDP, like, the social issues only get you so far. Like they're, they're the people that are going to be convinced by that have already been on your side. And so now they need to start um, getting voters that weren't going to vote for them or are undecided. And th- they're not going to be from the social issues. And there's been a lot of op-eds that have talked about this in the last week. So are we going to see a lot less outrage if we accept Natalie's proposition there that or uh, premise that basically the NDP needs to like shift gears and start talking about jobs in the economy and kind of leave leave the social stuff behind are we going to see less outrage you do two things with outrage so you do um you help your base you help fire up the base um that's why populist rhetoric works so well in elections but you also help uh demoralize other people so say if you're maybe in that camp of people that you talked about that you said you're talking to you also can get those people to stay home like oh i don't know who to vote for I'm just not going to vote for anyone. So it's a useful, outrage is a useful strategy for demoralizing people as well. I felt like that was happening. I'm sorry, Shama, I'll, 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 I'll shut up at one point. But I felt like that was happening before we even started this campaign. There was this like inevitability about Jason Kenney winning. And it almost suggested like we should just stay home. There's no point in even talking about things if you're at all progressive like that. That's, and I brought that up on uh, a few in a few uh, discussions and people lashed out at me like they were mad. How dare you talk about that inevitability? That, that makes people stay home. And I'm but like, it also makes conservatives stay home, right? Like it's one thing that the, the PC campaign for or Jason Kenney's PC leadership campaign was worried about when everyone was like thinking like, oh, yeah, Jason Kenney's going to win this um, PC leadership in a landslide. Well, his team was actually scared that like people weren't going to show up to the convention in I can't remember where it was Calgary because they thought it was going to be a shoe in. So that, it goes both ways, right? On one hand, if you think that this team's going to win, their supporters are, might not come out either. And if we're talking about marching and, you know, people like rallying and stuff as as part of outrage, um, I just want to ground this a bit historically because there's a difference between electoral politics and direct action politics. And these kind of ways that marching and direct action has made a difference hasn't, it's not just historical or romanticized in the 60s, but we had, you know, months ago, 5 million women in Kerala, women strikes in Chile, in Spain, like this is something that is really, really making a difference 
happens in lots of other places. Alberta doesn't have the history of direct action. And so when you can only mobilize like even a few thousand people is like not a lot to do direct action, but it still matters. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think it was a misguided comment, but like I, I do kind of sometimes think in a in a North American or Albertan context sometimes that there is a bit of romanticism at play, but fair enough. you want to just shoot the bitch. Could you please introduce your ad and tell us what we'll be watching? Yeah, so in the video, uh, there is testimony, I suppose you would call it, uh, in the term she's she's speaking to the camera, uh, about a woman um, alleging that Jason Nixon said, let's just shoot the B word, because this is a family-friendly podcast. Is it? It's called Outrage Machine. I don't think it is. We have (laughs) family-friendly outrage. At which point... Mr. Nixon turned and looked at them in the ditch and said, hey, whoever his friend was, do you want to just shoot the bitch? So at this point, if I don't say something, I have to live with myself and this needs to be her. So um, what we just saw was Alison Gentry. Uh, she's described as a landowner um, who's recounting an incident which, uh, ish- which uh, resulted in an assault charge uh, where... Allegedly, Jason Nixon said, why don't we just shoot the B word? I thought it was actually a really good example of using um, the political machine of outrage because you're tapping in on like violence against women. You're tapping in on um, criminality. You know, there's there's sort of like moral authority, like there's a few things. So it kind of almost dog whistles to some conservatives saying, like, is this what really what you're okay with? I don't know if it really is an effective dog whistle, but it's an attempt. Uh, and then you see with their messaging that they put out on top of it, that they're trying to you know, beat potential conservative voters over the head. Like, how can you vote for this? Let's talk about, because it somehow matters, I think, the production. So it's like sort of shot, it seemed like with like a cell phone. It's from far away. It's like bad production values. Then they add in this dramatic music. Kind of like a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it's got this vibe of like, you know, we got this cell phone footage. She's confessing or like, giving testimony instead of like this is produced or this is intentional do you think that that was intentional or is that just how it oh of course it's just like um when porn looks amateur people pay more money for it like family podcast (laughs) it's just the concept of sexuality what is this p word that you used i've never (laughs) so like on a website for example like if a website looks amateur if a porn website looks amateur it makes more money this is like back to my college days learning about websites. I had not, I had not come across that. Too slick of a website, that. people think you have too much money. Right. So it's it's the same. It's sort of a bid for authenticity. Uh, you'll see, I mean, you see it in horror movies too, and it starts like, this is based on a true story. It's the same concept. They're using horror movie concepts in their video production. That came up from the Alberta NDP uh, site proper. So it wasn't from a political action committee. And then the response from, was it from the, directly from the UCP or is it from um, Jason Nixon or others? I, I, I don't what, recall. I wasn't clear. I don't, know. Yeah, okay. I don't know if the UCP responded to it, but like it's... But the response had several men that he was with that day saying they gave uh, depositions. I, guess, I think that's the language where... Yeah, the uh, UCP did respond directly saying that they were, a lot of the allegations were false. The video itself is sufficiently, like the formal aspects of it are kind of meant to, you know... Make a star on Yeah, they're meant to tap on that idea of violence against women. Like, that's why they came out with that video uh, with um, Ms. Gentry in particular. So they're, they're tapping on a certain idea politically that's really important to the NDP base. And is they're hoping to send a message across the aisle to you know about morality i really yeah. didn't pick up on that but I that's, would, that's i would really good. question if it's actually going to have an effect like i think it's again like just shouting at your own team like riling up your base to to maybe get out donate to the ndp go door knock for the ndp but i really don't see this as a, a useful tool for converting any votes to the ndp really okay Chama, any thoughts no yeah i think that it's just gonna make people it's gonna rile people up who are already riled up i don't think anyone is gonna change their vote okay so let's move on my parents voted pc my grandparents voted pc we're a conservative family 
My dad always voted for Peter Lougheed. Four years ago, I voted for Jim Prentice because I supported the party, and I thought he was a good man. But Jason Kenny, he's just... He's... These issues with the truth... Don't, it's so obvious. It's it was, just, it was, it's so, I, like, I thought it was ridiculous, but my husband made a really interesting point uh, because he works for McEwen and he does ads and he said, what, like, they use ads for their students. Sorry if I'm not supposed to be talking about this, Ken. But they uh, they didn't want to. They wanted to use authentic ac- authentic kid, kids, yeah. students. But they were so bad on tape that it was just awkward and uncomfortable. So he said, well, you actually get a better product, which I thought that when was When someone actually believes what they're saying. I'm so. not, I don't take an issue with the actor part of it. I take an issue with, like, if you're going to use someone in a partisan ad, like, make sure they're clean. Like, there was somebody on Twitter that found within, like, minutes of this video being posted that this guy in 2015 tweeted about how, like, yeah, like, the PCs, I don't know, I have the clip here, but it's something like, the PCs were scum, next it's Harper and his scumbags, next. Like, it's, scrub your social media, guys, if you're going to do something like this and you want it to seem legit, like, clean clean your act up. I just want to say, like, I don't think this is going to change any votes either. Like, I don't think any of this is like, actually converting people. It's just amplifying what people think already. It was just really funny. And it, it riled someone up on the progressive side to, like, literally make, like, a personal attack on someone else's family. So I just thought that was funny that it had this ability. This this ad was so bad that someone was able to mock it in a way that actually made someone so mad to insult someone's family. Huh. Outrage machine just keeps feeding mm-hmm. off itself. Absolutely. Okay, let's go on to number... The or, donut? Did, yeah. Um, Number three. So in my ad, we're going to look at uh, an older gentleman who's going to walk in and uh, there's two donuts on a table and some people are enjoying some donuts. (laughs) And this uh, gentleman puts his hands on the donuts and cuts them in two and puts them together and magically... they become one. And the idea is that you can take some side from the left and some side from the right, put it together, and you have like, I don't know, like a Boston cream type donut. Well, I'm which a is donut delicious. connoisseur, so I'm wondering what type of donuts these were. It looked like rainbow color. Like it had a. There was Alberta Cardi. Alberta Cardi sprinkles. But it had sprinkles. A lot of the doors that people are concerned that we're splitting the vote on the right. Well, it's funny you should mention that, you know, because I'm hearing the exact same thing. But people are telling me we're splitting the vote on the left. You know, I'm hearing that just as much as well. Mm. Hi, guys. You know, I've heard the same thing. People say we're splitting the vote on the left, we're splitting it on the right. Here's my solution to it. We just do one of these. If you take a little from the left and you take a little from the right and you put it together... You get the winning combination, which is the Alberta party, which is the right choice. Delicious. That's one sweet donut. The magic changed the colors. <laughs> when it, yeah, like it was like definitely some magic, which is interesting to me because, well, it would have to take some kind of magic to bring together like very incompatible worldviews into some kind yeah, of This is exactly, donuts. thank you. Like that is exactly my problem with it aside from the like germaphobe It was thing. like a magic it's, trick because yeah, he's wearing like, a tuxedo. So easy, but it's so easy. Yeah, where's the rabbit? It's going to pop out of his hat. Like it, 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 on every level, it just made me go and like roll my eyes I didn't get angry I didn't laugh I just went like oh so it's basically how we all feel about the Alberta party campaign so far I just got in my Alberta party dig for the podcast thank you thank you I'm done I'm out so the candidate in my writing left a really nice handwritten note in my mailbox yeah, so that was, that was very nice. Well, I wonder, did she leave a donut or half? She didn't leave me no. half a donut, though. You have to bring your half, and then you put it together, and ding! But I did share it, and then they, all, and then somebody on Twitter also tagged the NDP MLA in my writing, so now I don't know if he's like going to come directly to my house to talk to me. I don't know if I'm in trouble. Or bribe sure. you with donuts. <laughs> but if he, if he comes, then please bring donuts. Um, let's talk about... Alberta Proud. Alberta Proud. <laughs> So what, so what did we what did we just watch? 
Well, it's this, uh, it's the pinned post on the Alberta Proud Facebook page right now. And it is a very short clip. There's no dialogue. It's just ominous music to start with. An angry emoji. Let's recap life in Alberta under the NDP. And so it's like as if the NDP is like a totalitarian regime that dictates everything. Um, and the music is just, it's really kind of over the top. So this actually made me laugh. There wasn't anything I could really be outraged about because it's so transparent. But there is a lot of uh, ways that, you know, it takes the, um, it takes certain stats like Calgary um, leads Canada in unemployment, which it does. Um, it didn't, you know, before oil prices tumbled, but that's not what this kind of format is about. It's just, let's flash some words on the screen. Um, and then there's a record scratch and it says, had enough, you're not alone. And there's some groovy bass music. And, uh, you know, it's just about kind of feeling angry together, but knowing that there's going to be some hope. Let's turn the page on Notley's NDP and bring back the Alberta advantage. So, of course, you know, the people who hate Notley really do. And the comments on this post are really indicative of that. But what's really funny is that this Alberta Advantage is accompanied by a picture of Ralph Klein in a cowboy hat. So, you know, people talk a lot about um, American exceptionalism, but this is a kind of Albert Albertan exceptionalism. Like we're special or chosen people because we have oil um, in the land and we just need to make Alberta great again, like when Klein was premier. I had a really different interpretation of it, actually. Like I... I watched it and I kind of thought like, okay, this is a really clever Facebook ad because there's no music to it. You can literally just watch the video or sorry, there's music to it. There's no words to it though, but it doesn't matter because you can watch it on mute at work or when you're on your phone and you don't need sound. This is why you're seeing subtitles on most, you're seeing subtitles on most stuff because a lot of people watch stuff on their phones. They have it on silent. So they watch it on the bus sort of part of it. Like I mean, this is thick. I could go on about that for hours, but this is a great data mining exercise. It riles people up. It's great for driving outrage, but there's a reason why it it, sh- it drops to Ralph Klein, right? Like that's the the Alberta political figure that Jason Kenney is saying, like, we are going to be like Ralph Klein was. We are going to bring Alberta back to a balanced budget. We're going to pay off the debt. And that shouldn't be surprising if we go to electionsalberta.ca and you look at who is running Alberta Proud. It's... Uh, Ralph Klein's former chief of staff's daughter. Yeah, if you don't know anything about history or data or like what happened, what was happening in the 90s versus what's happening now, then yeah, that sounds like a really, really great time to go back to. Um, But you know, there's like this pile of money and it's like they tripled our debt uh, with nothing to show for it. Alberta still has the lowest debt to GDP ratio. Like that's a little footnote, which which is not in the ad, but I just mean there are all of these ways that evacuating some information and just showing others gives a particular message. It has, it's making me think like, is Ralph Klein Alberta's Ronald Reagan? Like everyone like sort of worships that person in some way, or is he more divisive? Yeah, he gave us four hundred dollars. Yeah, I know. Which Uncle is a good Ralph. meal for some people, right? Isn't that? What I think there's obsession in Canadian politics these days about having a balanced budget. We're seeing that federally. We're seeing that provincially. Um, we saw Stephen Mandel in the debate bring up the fact that when he was mayor of Edmonton, he had to run a balanced budget. So there is this this drive to be constantly reminding. Um, Albertans and Canadians about this idea. And I think that's why we keep hearing about it. And so if this is such an important idea. The figure that we all look to is the guy that paid off the debt and the deficit and brought us to that balanced budget, to a surplus. And that's Ralph Klein. To Shama's point, though, um, a, a lot of people will talk about this stuff like, you know, we need to run the government like we would run a business. Guess what? Businesses run debt. Like that is naturally what and they I don't do. Think they have like, to. Like they, disputing that, though, like no one's ever well, going to say I don't like, know. no, but no one's ever going to say like, you know, like, when you when you're in a household, you have your mortgage by a house, like no one's disputing that. But I think it becomes the discussion of it's it's not necessarily debt, but it's like, are we going to use debt and deficits to drive our operating expenses and that and that's not capital necessarily but that's a policy discussion 
are disputing it though that i mean because that is the that is the rhetoric as you've as you've said that you have to run a balanced budget and we can't we can't pay for things we can't afford things anymore um i mean that's sort of the populist bent of the making sure we have a balanced budget criticizing you know trudeau criticized harper for not having a balanced budget that's it's it's sort of almost nonpartisan, but and rachel notley's saying we're going to balance the budget only one year after jason kenney plans to like it's it's something that People have figured out voters in Alberta want to hear. I just shrugged really big. Well, if people like, can't see. make Alberta great again is Ralph Klein, like, didn't Ralph Klein punch a homeless person? I mean, oh, the way we think about say make Alberta punch, great again. I don't think he punched like, a homeless person. He threw, uh, he threw, threw money. Oh, no, he threw, threw money. money. Okay, okay. Threw money at a homeless person. But like, okay, actually, that's that's much better for my point because it's about like, here, you, you want social services? Here you go. Like, I'm here, like, to balance the budget. But like, yeah, you want some coins? Like, that kind of ethos is like actually really dangerous and damaging to a lot of people. We could go through every premier in the history of this province and this country and find something to criticize them on. I don't know. Throwing coins at a homeless person seems like to relate to the policy. He also bought um, tickets for them to go to Vancouver. Let's look ahead, guys, at the actual election, which is going to be next Tuesday. Um, I think throughout this discussion, like the question has come into my mind and maybe you guys as well, but... Just how effective has all of this been? I mean, we've all, I felt exhausted last week. Like I literally felt exhausted looking at Twitter as we were talking, Danielle, like so much unable to look away. It pulls like, it pulls me down. It makes me like cynical. Um, I've gotten outraged a few times. I've seen people lose their minds. I've seen people scream at at each other. I've seen lots of fighting. Um, How effective has it been? Has it changed anything? There's an article by Elise Stoltz that talks about um, Drayton Valley, which is MLA Mark Smith's riding. Uh, Mark Smith was recently in the political sphere for uh, some comments he made calling homosexual love not good love and also a paper that he uh, authored where he argued that they could uh, they could fire um, gay teachers. So the the story uh, is where um, Elise takes uh, she is in a coffee shop. She's talking to two women who say they actually share the same views as Mark Smith. There's another um, person who's actually um, queer identified in the article who says they're not really sure. They thought maybe they would vote conservative, but now they're not sure. Uh, And there are other people saying, well, this doesn't really involve me. And I think this doesn't really involve me is exactly how people vote. So I care about X issue. This is the most important thing to me. I vote based on this. These other things, like perhaps I do not like them, but I will ignore them because partly because of identity, actually maybe even mostly because of identity. So people vote based on what they think that they are and it who taps their values the best. And it's something that's always existed. Like it, it comes down to that fundamental question of what is the ballot box issue? And that's always going to be something in, in campaigns and elections that is going to be the hardest thing to figure out. What is the ballot box issue? And to add on to your point, Danielle, like there was a an article in the CBC on April 5th titled, Support for UCP Remains Solid, Unwavering Despite Controversies. And they basically interview four Albertans, and a lot of them are saying like, yeah, like, you know, this, this Mark Smith thing kind of made me uncomfortable. This made me uncomfortable. Like they're listing off a bunch of stuff. And then they're like, but I think Jason Kenney is the best for this. Or I'm voting for this party because of this reason. Like there's a lot of things that people are acknowledging being like, yeah, this is bad. But and then they're saying what their actual ballot box driver issue is. Okay, it, it to me, sorry, Shem, you want to, um, it's to me, I'm seeing this divide between what we see as partisan and what we see as identity. Sometimes they don't align, sometimes they do, but the the, the people reacting like that, I think has uh, on the other side of the, let's say the spectrum is just like, people are aghast at that. They're just so taken aback, like, what does the UCP really have to do for you to not vote UCP? And so there was this discussion about, you know, maybe the UCP or back in the day, the PC party could like run a, a, a broom or run a tree in a riding and probably still win because people vote based on their identity to that party, not the the issues. But it, it, I think it's really, I'm seeing this division now between people just aghast at like, that isn't a line for you. Like that isn't a red line, and 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 I'm 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 really interested to to understand um, how the outrage that's been used over the past few weeks is going to l- allow us to even kind of like reconcile those differences, or will we ever? So one thing I brought up in episode one of this podcast was when I look at an issue, I always like to think about 
why does someone actually think this? Like, I don't like to just dismiss someone's view as being bigoted or racist or whatever. I, I always try to dial back down to like, why, why is it that they think this way? And, and one thing that really has helped me get this mindset was reading Hillbilly Elegy a couple years ago, um, shortly after the 2016 presidential election in the U.S. And and what that's let me do is, is kind of think about something from both sides of the issue, because it's so easy to get trapped in your own bubble. And me personally, being a partisan, it's so easy to get trapped in my own partisan bubble. And I think it makes us all um, better citizens. It makes us more compassionate people. And it makes us better campaigners and politicians if we can understand why something is so important to someone else? Or why does this issue not register on their scale of importance? You know, I think that outreach has been really, really important historically. I think that a lot of, you know, ways that people have become more free just in like the history of even just in North America um, has come from outrage. That is not the kind of outrage that I'm seeing in this Alberta election. And so with the electoral map being what it is, I think all the UCP has to do, because it is the party that is just advantaged in the electoral map of Alberta, is uh, keep their base. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people were outraged at the Adler interview, but Kenny's defensive outrage there at being asked certain questions was actually all he needed to do there. And even Charles Adler says, like, we maybe are not friends anymore, but I don't actually think this is going to change the outcome of the election. So... Outrage is really important historically. I, yeah, I don't think that, that that's the kind of outrage we're seeing. That reminds me so much of, um, it was a book that by John Ronson about, it's been, so you've been publicly shamed and it talked about the different people who'd been shamed on public or on social media. And one of the things that really struck me was that there was a man, it was in the UK, he was um, shamed by some sort of paper, like by some tabloid paper for some sort of kinky sex scandal but he got outraged in return he got mad he got defensive he survived the scandal and it actually seems like the best way to avoid shaming is to be outraged yourself whether you're right or wrong if you react defensively Brett Kavanaugh sort of thing yeah exactly the angry man like he's more he's more authentic he's more believable because he's angry yeah like okay yeah it's sort of like it gives you even if you don't deserve it a sense of righteousness so but what's really struck me is that does this outrage matter and and i'm not sure so there's political parties drawing divides exhausting people ripping apart neighbors so to speak like that is the outrage machine that the political um that the political machine is, is driving forward and it has no real purpose except for them to gain power. It has, it has no, it doesn't do anything for the people. It doesn't do anything for us as Albertans. It actually makes us worse. I, I agree with that. Um, and I think it, what it has done is really dumbed down the level of discourse that I'm getting from, and I hate this and I'm sorry, but media. So um, I think like people attacking media is like that is the dumbest thing you can do and the easiest thing you can do. And I'm going to do it right now. Um, I think that we've been chasing around the outrage machine. Uh, the news cycle has been driven by the outrage machine and things like affordable housing, poverty, um, the uh, child welfare system, all sorts of things have not been talked about in a in a fulsome way because we've been running around trying to like chase down the latest outrage. And, and there's no media. I mean, there's not enough people that's that's true. That's absolutely true. And that's way. like, so I used to live in that world. So I know that. And, and, you know, so my apologies to everyone out there. I know how hard you work, but I think that the outrage machine has in some ways forced them to follow this uh, glowing orb of, of rage. And we ignore some of the other things that maybe some people actually do really care about, but we're being engaged on this like emotional level to just be angry. So if we go back to the original question, which is, is the outrage machine actually going to influence, influence this election at all? And I, I'm actually not going to answer that because I'm not at the doors talking to voters every day. Um, but I was in the 2015 federal election. And I, I think I door knocked a few thousand, maybe 5,000 doors over the course of that rip period. I managed a candidate's social media and communications. Like I was in the thick of it. I was talking to voters every day for hours every day. And this was during a very divisive campaign in 2015. And what I realized is that people don't really notice a lot of those things. They have 
again, their issues that are important to them, and they hear everything else, but it doesn't really influence how they vote. And so the reason I'm not answering that is because I'm not at the doors this election. I'm not talking to voters every day. Last In the last federal election, I talked to thousands of voters over the course of a month, many times off in cases, talking to the same people. And that gave me a better understanding of what was actually driving their intentions and their voters, having been able to talk to them and seeing the data that we we're collecting at that that micro campaign level. On the other hand, if I were working on a campaign, I wouldn't be here with you guys. So I, I wouldn't be talking about those numbers anyways. But I, I think it's really easy for us to sit here and, and maybe speculate. But the people that are actually going to be able to answer that question are the ones right now who are pounding pavement and ruining their shoes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, is it a white liberal romanticized fantasy of reconciliation that we're all going to get along and be one Alberta? Um that is driving me to ask this question that, um, you know, are we going to be like more divided, uh, in like, you know, 2019 than we have been in, in, in months and years past because of this election, because of this outrage machine? So I'm going to say, no, we're not going to be more divided, but our divisions are going to be more visible. And that's, I think the big difference, because I don't think there is any reconciliation between somebody like Mark Smith and like a trans kid of color. Like, a you know, I have uh, immigrant students in my courses who are gay and trans and like there there's no way for them. Like I would never ask for them to sit down with the, with somebody like Mark Smith or it would be horrific to think about him being their teacher, you know, so I don't think I don't think there's reconciliation. I think the only reason maybe why we are seeing these lines this time is because we actually have an election that's being contested. So in in 40 odd years of political history in Alberta, there there really was no campaigning like this is relatively new for the Alberta political scene that we even have a horse race of any kind um, outside of, you know, central Edmonton, really. So I, I think that this has always existed. We've seen it across Canada and other regions. But the reason why we're taking notice now in Alberta is because it's it's new for us. The So there was this premise put forward. This will be my last uh, discussion. So there's this premise put forward um, by um, someone on the progressive side saying, there's been this misread of the Alberta electorate. You know, we're young, we're we're hip, we're urban, we're educated. We're all these well, all these things that suggest that um, Alberta should be super progressive. And there's this misread of who we are based on who we have been, uh, because Alberta is changing. We're seeing all sorts of uh, immigration, migration across the, the from other parts of Canada. Um, Alberta is not Alberta from 10, 15, 20 years ago. So that was the argument. And I found myself, my gut reaction to that, to be honest, was I think you've misread what people vote for. That maybe maybe they don't vote, maybe they don't in uh, everyday uh, sort of discussion identify as a conservative or that sort of stuff. But when it comes down to it, when the ballot box is there, I think Alberta might be, or Alberta might be showing that it actually has this latent conservatism is do you guys agree or disagree i'm really fascinated by that because i come from ontario where liberalism is kind of in the dna like it's oh a laurentian elite yes that's right so you know it's it's weird to go off liberal script like everyone's kind of in the liberal tent even if they're they're on the right you know so yeah i mean it's the same sort of heritage in alberta in in a lot of places edmonton has always been the outlier which is why it has that nickname redmonton but a lot of people as we've seen in some of the discussion which is through the media but it is still it's what people consume is is the idea of identity and the idea of albertan and what makes albertan and that is sort of a a traditional um white oil like oil and gas resource-based career like there's that's still very strong um i don't know that uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't progressive values i think what we've also seen is when it comes to like um lgbtq issues that alberta is actually kind of tired of relitigating this fighting this over and over again uh and women's issues too i mean you have uh even on the conservative side candidates saying that they won't open it um Time will tell, but Stephen Harper didn't because he knew that that would sort of be the fight of his life. So uh, I guess there's sort of like Alberta's conservative, but inching towards progress. That's how I would read it. I I wouldn't even put a label on it. Like I, I think back to what is the history of Alberta? Alberta was a place like this 
unknown land, this wild territory where people had to come and settle it and break land. You know, they were given a plot of land for free or, or very cheap. But, you know, there were these harsh winters. The the land was hard to farm, that sort of thing. So you go back to the, the very beginning of Alberta's history, and it drove certain values that I think have continued to get passed down from generation to generation in Alberta, regardless of your partisanship. And you see that, you know, from immigrant communities coming in, they have very similar values as well. And I, I don't know that it becomes a, a conservative versus liberal thing. It becomes a, a method of survival, really. And it's, it's really just like settler fantasy, though, the idea that Alberta was unpopulated and that it was this hard scrabble thing that they had to take and learn to survive. Like that's it is the story that Alberta tells itself, but it's not necessarily the truth. And it's not the whole story. I mean, well, it's definitely not the whole story. I'm sure there was some scrabble there or no. not yeah, the actual sure. scrabble, like, but, but like if you look at like Métis culture, right, like that my people in particular come from like Winnipeg, which is incredibly cold uh, and incredibly difficult to live. And they did blend the parts of like French and Scottish. Scottish and indigenous cultured for hunting and survival. But um, the only reason that settlers actually survived in a lot of instances was because indigenous people helped them too. So that's sort of a forgotten, like that's, that's a forgotten value. Yeah, absolutely. And like our history goes back to, I mean, officially goes back to, as a province goes back to 1905. Like we're talking very young, very, very immature history. But if you go deeper, it's very much what Daniel's talking about. Like that uh, it's a place that was full of people just were, who have been kind of pushed aside and not part of that narrative. But I think it's interesting what Natalie brings up, because I think that that is that settler idea is informing a lot of how we we vote at the ballot box. And I think it's a lot of like what, you know, immigrants thought, too. Like if I think back to how my family came to Canada, they paid the head tax and they made their way to Alberta because there weren't as many people here. So it was easier for them to open a restaurant here in Alberta or Saskatchewan than it was in Vancouver, Victoria, where they landed. So I think we're going to see that we all have different interpretations of Alberta's history and how it came to be here. But again, we're all going to be guided based on what our own personal history is or what our ancestral background is. And those are the values that are ultimately going to get passed down. So if we think about it from an immigrant perspective, or we think about it from someone who worked in the oil patch and was working 18 hours a day outside, regardless of the weather, you're going to find those common bonds and uh, ways of thinking. And those are often what is driving someone how to vote. And one thing that I keep hearing a lot of is like, you know, we can care about fiscal issues and social issues at the same time. However, and there's always that but, And they always talk about how, like, I need to put food on the table. Like, I need to pay my bills. Like, my energy costs are going up. I lost my job. And it's always going to come back to, like, yeah, let's help other people, but I need to help myself first. And I I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing or wrong. But it's human nature. It, it may be human nature or, or or whatever, but I don't think it reflects reality. Like, I think we, we grow up in a society that helps us out and, and provides all the things that we take for granted, uh, you know, the schools, the roads, all the things that make us pull us up. And then we talk about our own hard work and individu- individualize it. And I think that there's a bit of a, uh, a let's say, imagination gap on, as to how much the state or the, the society is actually helping you in, in, in Alberta. That's my impression. But then if it, we draw drive it back to like the ballot box question. Did I, 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 you're in my peripheral, so I can't (laughs) go ahead. Um, Well, I think it's an awfully cynical worldview to think that we're only looking out for ourselves. And I guess I know a lot of people who want to support the community around them, even if there isn't anything, you know, that's going to benefit them. And we get back so much more than we pay in taxes. I mean, taxes, the outrage over taxes could be its own podcast. Um, But when I hear Tim talk about demographics and like the way Alberta is changing. I read an article that was making that argument recently and I really want to believe in this narrative of progress, but I don't. And I don't like as a person and as a scholar and and for all kinds of reasons. Um, And I think we're facing a lot of crises right now, ecological crisis, economic crisis, like all kinds of different forms of crisis that I are only going to increase the volatility of like our political sphere. All right, guys, have have fun next Tuesday. I plan to be in, I think I promised on Twitter, but I'm going to be in a bar tweeting uh, dead philosopher quotes. Bye.